Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein the Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R yet again. We've got a big show for you today. I'm going to introduce my team in just a moment. But before I do that, I just wanted to remind everyone that the Radiothon is still on. We're not doing the real active on-air part of it at the moment, but we still have all the prizes available if you manage to get online and... You know, donate or, or uh, become a subscriber to the station uh, up until Wednesday, the 6th of October at 5 p.m. That's this week. So if you want to do that, get on rrr.org.au. We'd very much appreciate it. The station needs your support to survive. So um, if you've got a few spare coins and you haven't done it already, then please do that for us. We'd appreciate it. Anyway, uh, online with me now is uh, Dr. Linden. Good morning, madam. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Lovely to be back after a great show last week. It's nice to nice to be talking to you again. Yeah, it was a big show last week, uh, Kids and COVID. So no doubt we will be doing that again, actually, at some stage. So it's not done because as we transition over the next uh, year, uh, next year, I was going to say next month, um, it's going to be it's a lot of tough times but for parents and kids and teachers and the like. Uh, we've also got Dr. Laura. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good. Good to see you. And Dr. Ray, good morning. Morning, Dr. Shane. I, I haven't seen you since the quake. I hope you were able to rebuild. I put the chair upright and put the one book back on the shelf. Uh, <laughs> I have uh, one of my colleagues where I, I the cancer charity I, I run, she sent me a great picture of the damage at her house. And it was, um, there were four stones she has on her sideboard and the top stone had rolled off. And she sent that to me and said, we, we will re, 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 rebuild at some stage. I'm like, you know, we, uh, there's a whole lot of people over in New Zealand looking at us just going, what are you guys on about? Seriously. Um, but hey, you know, it's uh, exciting times in Melbourne when something like that happens. And we're going to do some earthquake stuff uh, soon. I've got a, asked a colleague and he sent me a list a mile long of amazing people to interview. So we will um, do that in the coming weeks, which should be fun. Once the media circus around it, you know dies down a little bit but let's jump into some news uh dr linden do you want to start us off what do you got oh shane i have got a fossil brain this week uh maybe a lot of us have got a fossil <laughs> brain right now that soft valuable matter slowly slowly converting into something very hard and dense uh but it's mainly because I've been exploring and finally casting my vote for Victoria's state fossil emblem. There's still time, and I'm, I'm sure we've spoken about this on the show before, that the mm. Melbourne Museum is running a campaign to vote for our state fossil emblem. There are eight different fossils to choose from, from a beautiful giant plant fossil to a mammal, a marsupial, uh, an old whale ancestor. It's so cool. And what I find so incredible, and I had no idea, was that all of these fossils, there's a map. If you go to the voting page, there's a map that shows you where all these fossils were found across Victoria. And it's, I've been, I feel like I've had an adventure across the state this morning as I cast my vote, even though, honestly, I'm still in my Ugg boots. So the story that I came across this week, um, thinking about this, this fossil brain of mine that I've got, 
it kind of made me sad from a scientific point of view, but heartened from the point of view who's someone who will hopefully soon live in a state with its own fossil emblem, is about this this small chicken style dinosaur fossil that was found. It's 110 million years old. It's been named by some scientists, and here's the controversial part. It's been named by some scientists as Ibijara jubatus, okay? So that was the name that was given to this chicken-like dinosaur uh, in a paper that was written and submitted to Cretaceous Research in December last year. And this week, the paper has been formally withdrawn. The editors have decided to withdraw it from publication because the scientists who wrote about this fossil are not from the country that the fossil was found in. So the fossil uh, is from Brazil. And German researchers brought it from Brazil over to Germany and did extensive research on it. But according to the Brazilian authorities and the Brazilian scientists, because there are paleontologists in Brazil as well, there haven't been enough um, boxes ticked and and I's dotted and T's crossed for the fossil to be legally removed from the country. Wow. Right? Mm. Uh, Yeah. And so this this story um, really struck me because in some respects, and and one of the German scientists is saying this fossil and this uh, dinosaur now has undergone a second extinction. So I've given you the name of the fossil, but actually now the paper's been retracted and withdrawn. It no longer exists to science again. And this controversy and this debate that's going on between, uh, between the countries about the legal ramifications and the ethical ramifications of which country kind of owns a fossil and, and where that, fossil belongs is something that's happening more and more. Um, The statistics around where fossils are found versus where fossils are published about is pretty confronting, actually, from a colonial kind of point of view. Um, And this poor little, this chicken fossil with its crazy spiky little shoulders that it had and its incredible story that it has to tell um, has got one more kind of journey to navigate before it can be found to science. And I just thought this story was really... um, yeah, really interesting seeing some scientists saying, oh, but I've done all this work and I've worked really hard to explain this, this fossil and describe this new species, whereas the, the people and the countries that feel it's their story uh, mm. are saying, no, we've got these rights, we've got these skills, we can do this as well. I think it's a, a conversation that I'm, I'm glad to see that it's happening and I look forward to hearing about Brazil's fossil emblem in the years to come. Yeah, look, I'd, I'd be very interested um, to know too how long that fossil's been sitting in a museum in Germany like if, like with many of these discoveries, it's something that's been sitting in the bowels of a museum for thirty or fifty years, and has just been brought up, um, which which often indicates that you know it was taken at a time you know where things were far more inappropriate. Whereas if this was a fossil they grabbed last year without permission, that's a different set of sort of discussions. And yeah, I think um, not knowing which of those is, it's hard to it's hard to comment. But certainly, when scientists start beating each other up across borders, you start getting into all sorts of trouble. But yeah. Well, hopefully they'll work it out and uh, yeah, you know, go from yep. there. And I think this, I think this story is also leading to some other museums. My understanding is this particular fossil was taken not that long ago on the scale right. of things that have been moved to museums, but this story has led to already museums in other places. I think there was a museum in Kansas that this week returned 35 yeah. different specimens back to Brazil uh, as well. Yep. So these conversations are making more conversations happen, which yep. is really useful. That's a good thing. Dr. Ray, what do you got for us? 
So, Dr. Shane, I have a discussion about what's something called a Wigner crystal, which I didn't know about, um, which, of course, but it was a, it's an idea that was postulated 90 years ago by a Hungarian-born theorist named Eugene Wigner, naturally. Uh, and the idea was that he had postulated that you could actually make a two-dimensional crystal of a m matter just out of electrons. Now, that sounded pretty crazy to me because electrons, as everyone knows, make up atoms, but they hang out with protons and, neutron and, and neutrons, and together that makes up an atom. And when we say in metals, when we put all of those atoms together, the electrons conduct electricity. They actually are the electricity, and they move around kind of like a sea of electrons. But you don't think of making a material on its own out of electrons. And, and so to make a Wigner crystal, which has actually been done earlier this year, scientists are able to do that by taking two semiconductors that are slightly similar and sandwich them together in a very small device and apply voltage, and they can make a two-dimensional crystal of electrons, which is just crazy to me. And because electrons shouldn't make crystals, they move around, they jet around, they have a lot of energy. But if you cool things down and slow it down, then the electrons kind of go, hey, I know you, I see you. Actually, I have a negative charge. I don't want to be near you. And they feel these repulsions and form these amazing honeycomb-like crystals. And so it's a very uniform packing of an electron. Now, they've made these and they proved they existed kind of like from an indirect method that I would call it strobe shadow photography is what they've done so far on an electron scale. But how do you measure an electron? Technically, electrons, we normally use beams of electrons to measure other things. So how do you measure the thing that you normally measure with? And so scientists in Berkeley this week were able to do this. And they used what's called a scanning tunneling microscope, which is a, a very sharp metal point that you can drag over a surface on an atomic scale and use a voltage to measure the location of or, or the location of voltage on a surface. Now, the problem is electron crystals are quite difficult to measure. And if you you apply a voltage to measure them, it's kind of like trying to measure the waves on the ocean by using a hose. The moment the hose hits the water, it'll break up the wave and you can't see it. So these clever researchers at Berkeley were able to use, you could call it an electron baffle. They put on a, an atomic layer of graphene to kind of balance just how much of that fire hose effect happened. And they were actually able to directly image these great honeycomb patterns of these two-dimensional crystals of electrons. And so it really answers a 90-year debate about whether or not these things exist and can we observe them. And it allows theorists to actually start talking about new theories about how electrons behave. Hmm. And so I just was, was blown away by the whole story. Hmm. I went, wait, that can be a thing. And it was earlier this year than to be able to measure it. I just went, Wow, 2D crystals of electrons? Hadn't heard of it before. Yeah, that's weird so, stuff. It's like telling cool. me there's 2D crystals of light. Um, we just don't think of those things in that way. So yeah. that's that's phenomenal. I have to, I'm going to look that up when I get out of here. Uh, Dr. Laura, what do you got for us? I love how excited everybody is about their science stories today. <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, I read a story which I thought was really cool, which was about identical twins. And no one actually knows how identical twins arise. Why a fertilized egg will sometimes split, no one knows, and it happens totally at random. And in case you're thinking, I thought that was genetic, that's paternal twins. So that's when you've got two eggs, two sperm, 
that's heavily genetic and inherited by the mother. But identical twins, no one knows how it comes about. And it's actually very, very common. Um, so in this study, um, researchers from the Netherlands, and they published this this week in Nature Communications, they analyzed the genomes of more than 6,000 pairs of twins. And what they found was that identical twins carry distinct epigenetic marks. And they actually found that these specific marks were in, I'll get you the figure, 834 sites within the genome. And just to recap everybody on epigenetics, it's easy to remember because epi is a pon, and it's essentially just an additional layer of information on top of our DNA sequence. So just the additional uh, addition of methyl groups, for example, and this can determine whether genes are switched on or off. So identical twins, they have these um, epigenetic marks. And what's really cool is that the presence of these marks can also determine whether people who aren't identical twins were previously identical twins in the womb. And something I didn't know is that vanishing twin syndrome, whereby you can miscarry and reabsorb one twin back into the womb, is actually incredibly common. And most parents don't ever know that they were carrying multiple multiple embryos. So 12% of all pregnancies will result in um, multiple pregnancies, but only 2%. Um, lead to actual viable twin births. And so rather than just for people to know, oh, out of interest, I used to be an identical twin, this information could actually be useful because identical twins can actually have increased susceptibility to some sorts of diseases like spina bifida. Also left-handedness, not a disease, but you're more likely to be left-handed if you were once an identical twin. And so... um, What's not clear out of this study is the epigenetic marks that you get. Is it a byproduct because your um, the embryo split, or was it the causation? That's not known, and so it's still not clear how um, identical twins arise. But yet now we can identify who was one, and obviously more studies are now undergoing to work out what these epigenetic marks actually mean. That's wild. Or my my older brother was was a a, a, a twin that only one one came out and did there were there any epigenetics that commented on the size of one's ego because i always wondered if that explained something about my brother uh <laughs> it correlates with left-handedness you could do a wider panel there are so many former identical twins out there i had no idea it was so common i'm left-handed now i'm wondering if i absorbed my brother or my sister you yeah, ate, you ate them, them Lyndon. you ate them well, it's, that makes sense based on my eating habits in the last 18 months. <laughs> you can do a really simple cheek swab test and go and get that checked out, Lyndon. Oh, thank yeah. you, Dr. Laura. I might do just that. There you go. There's a whole lot of people who are going to get cheap cheek swab tests for a different reason than what we've been discussing for the last 18 months. Thank you, Laura, for giving us that. And, uh, Lyndon, if you do find out why there's been that sense of loss and, and emptiness for the last however many 22 years um this could be this could be the answer for you um you know good luck with that <laughs> are you saying i'm 22 thanks shane hey, i don't like to i don't like to i don't like to make guesses that are based on you know fiction triple r you are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 I'm Dr. Shane, and we have a guest on the line now for, all the way from South Australia from Flinders University. Professor Marcello Costa is the Matthew Flinders Distinguished Professor and Professor of Neurophysiology and Human Physiology over there in the College of Medicine and Public Health. Marcello, welcome to the show. 
Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for having me and to everyone in Melbourne. Look, it's great to talk to you. We were just discussing during the break how uh, there are some freedoms over there at the moment in Adelaide that we're not sharing in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, sounds like you're still taking all the precautions necessary, though, as you, as you head into the university and, and the like, yeah? Yes, yes, we are very careful here, and so far, so good. Yep. Excellent. Now, you've been working in an area where, you know, I, I think often when these things come up, people people run away. But I love this sort of stuff on our show because we like to talk to talk about all areas of science, not just the stuff that the general media like to pick up. But you, you work in the area of essentially of, of feces and the way in which our, our, our poo is formed and, and what that means and many of the, the issues with that. But tell us where this started because you started working – on this with guinea pigs back in the 1970s. So this has been a, a lifelong sort of toil of yours, yeah? Yes, I must say even longer than that because I started uh, as a medical student in the University of Torino in, in Italy. Yep. As a medical student, I started to do work and I was interested in the brain like many young people are. And when I went to the, the department where I thought they were studying the nervous system, they told me, no, well, we are studying the, the nervous system of the gut. So you can start from there. And I did. And of course, I am still stuck there in a way that uh, I'm a neuroscientist in the sense that I want to describe and explain behavior on the basis of the nervous system. Mm. And I still am interested in that, and I still teach medical students and science students about how the brain works. But actually, the gut has on has its own nervous system, and that's why I was so fascinated from the, the very beginning. So I started to work, and and indeed, when I moved to Australia as a postdoc in Melbourne. I started to work uh, on on the motility, on the on the motor behavior of the intestine, because the gut is important to know. It's the largest organ in the body, mm. and it's the one which is harder to study because it's hidden. It's very large and has different components, you know, from the esophagus, stomach, and small intestine and colon. And the most difficult one is indeed the colon, because it's the it's the one that will receive later all the contents. And, uh, and to study the colon is something that's been not very easy. But one important thing is that most of medicine and most of understanding of how the body works come from working on animals. And mm. guinea pigs, other animals, have been centered to understand how the various organs work. And not surprisingly, the gut. So most, much of what we know in medicine comes from studies of the animal. I say this because many people think that the animal should be untouchable. We, we, we respect them. We are very keen on looking after them. But without studying the animal, we wouldn't know what happened in our body either. And mm. so I work on animals. I work also on humans without my colleagues in, in the clinics. And therefore, we, we are breaching, if you like, we are bridging the, the gap between the animals and humans. But the reality is that we know still very little of how the behavior of the intestine, particularly the colon, the movement controlled by this nervous system that controls the movement, operates in doing something very simple but very important which means to transform the content that has to be excreted in a form that actually can be excreted. Mm. And until recently, people assumed that the animals like guinea pig, which are herbivores, you know, they eat, they eat grass or rabbits, they have a very different function than humans or mice. Well, we, we beg to different in the sense that we reviewed this in a big international meeting a few years ago in, in Louvain in Belgium, and we came to the conclusion that there are some some uh, common mechanism that uh, apply to the guinea pig and humans. That's why we kept working on guinea pigs, because what we learn in guinea pigs 
can we eventually apply to humans? It's, it's a fascinating area. I mean, first of all, I just want to touch on this issue of the nervous system because often when we talk about the nervous system in general, people just talk about the nervous system. But, I mean, from your perspective, you'd see there's both the central nervous system and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the enteric nervous system that is that other part that contains the nervous system, the gut and other parts of the body, which although not and, – and this is not connected to the central nervous system or controlled by the nervous system – in that way, is it like it's a separate? Essentially, we we have a separate nervous system that does all this other work. Yes, indeed. In a way, it's called enteric nervous system because it's part of what has been regarded from early last century, the autonomic nervous system. But the enteric nervous system was, in a way, lost for many years because the person that first described and separated from everybody knows about the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. Well, the entire nervous system is the third component mm. of the autonomic and autonomic because it looks like it's working in autonomy from the central nervous system. It's not quite true, by the way. This entire nervous system within the gut is connected to the brain, but has a unique feature that contains sufficient circuits to work independently from the central nervous system, so independent that we can actually take the gut out of the animal or segment, as we do, and maintain it alive like a, a, a organ culture. And for many hours, the, the, the network of this uh, enteric circuit can operate independently, and that's what we discovered. That not only can actually propel the content by sensing the mechanical and the chemical content, but can actually organize the movement in such a way that manages even to shape the content in the form of the pellets uh, or the feces that the guinea pigs produce, and we suspect something equivalent happening in humans. Mm. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me because this, this idea of producing these pellets and producing these shapes, this is not a simple thing. Like this is, you know, actually, you know, making something a certain size and anyone who's ever owned a rabbit or a guinea pig knows that that size is very consistent day in, day out. Like it's always pretty much the same size. Like you could grab a thousand of these guinea pig, you know, droppings, and they'd all be within a few percentage of one another, I suspect. So there's there's something very sophisticated going on there in terms of determining that size, truncating it and saying, okay, next. I mean, do we do we have an understanding of how that works now? I think we do. That is why when I started to work on how the colon, the guinea pig, uh, pushes the content, and we studied that in the, in the 1970s indeed, then since then we needed... Uh, techniques and methodology which allowed us to, if you like, analyze the circuits, both um, um, anatomically and also functionally. And I developed a few methods which allowed us to transform the movement of the gut in some images that can be analyzed in a very quantitative way. And we can record also the, all the electrical events happening within the gut. And using this method in the last few years, we could maintain alive the entire distal, the, the entire color of the guinea pig with the components we appear, the, indeed, the, the mechanism that formed the pellet. And what I, I demonstrated in the paper this year is that the colon can indeed transform something that looks like a smooth and, and consistent uh, uh, into little pellets, even when it's working on its own. Mm. And so we analyzed that and discovered that this, there are two mechanisms, one depending on this enteric circuit, the, the nervous system, that pushes in one direction slowly, and then there's, a, there's something that pushes back which is entirely is like a pacemaker, like a little heart uh, pushing back the content. So between these two forces, one pushing further down and one pushing back, that is what shapes the pellet. Mm. Then once the pellets are formed, 
then we knew already that there's a mechanism that we call a new mechanical loop. It's like a walking of the gut that is almost like walk over the pellets. And if the gut is fixed, then instead of walking over the pellet, the pellet actually are pushed out. But so there's, a, there's at least three or four mechanisms involved, very specifically in different parts of this colon of the guinea pig. And from the little we know about the human still, we suspect something very equivalent happening in humans as well. Yeah, look, it's incredible. Now, tell us, though, with regards to humans, and as you said, you, you, you see um, humans in the clinic. Um, I mean, there are so many things that can go wrong with our gut and with, with our ability to, um, you know, pass solid, you know, food through our entire system. And I, I know when people have surgery and various other things, all this stuff goes goes astray. What, what are you learning in terms of how to better manage that in humans from, from this work? But this work, what it's doing, we are still at, very, at the very beginning. Uh, as I said, the, 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 the colon, human or guinea pig, is almost the last uh, organ to be understood, apart from the brain, of course. Mm. But in a way, it's, it's almost just coming to life, the similarities between the animals and humans. While the heart of the guinea pig has been known now for more than 100 years, and we learn about this in parallel with the, the human heart, for the human colon, we are just beginning now to find some similarities. So what we are doing is developing the methods that we are using in the guinea pig and slowly apply that to the human intestine, both in isolated segment of human intestine from patients or from normal people when they have to take some, some colon out for different reasons, but also in, in patients. And what is beginning to emerge is that the mechanism that we are finding in, in the guinea pigs begin to filter that are present also in humans. But until we have a way to to analyze and record them properly, we could not, and as for the time being, we still cannot uh, identify uh, the difference between a patient and a normal person. So we're still struggling at the beginning of understanding how the human colon works. But I think the signs are there, at least the mechanisms are very much in common, and therefore the, the, the analysis of the movement in the colon which are done now in parallel with the with the with animals are given an enormous amount of information. My colleagues in the department of surgery and gastroenterology, all around the world, are now beginning to analyze the data uh, mm. on the best what we have done in the guinea pig. So in a way, the guinea pig represent our little model of what the human might do, and 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 uh, our colleague clinicians are beginning to gather all the information that will allow us to distinguish normal versus abnormal. Now, of course, humans are more complicated because the diet of humans is is, uh, is multiple, different, and therefore, in addition to be also herbivores, as we are to some degree, we are also carnivores and we are omnivores, and so the, the function of the human gut are like to be slightly more complex than the guinea pig. So, in a way, we are only beginning to open a little door which will allow our colleagues to, to analyze better the movement in humans and be, begin to distinguish what is normal and what is not normal. That's very difficult to do, but you're right. Plenty of mm. people have complained about the, the about the colon, about defecation. There are genetic diseases uh, which are complex and produce very different uh, symptoms and signs. So this is a whole area to come alive, and I'd like to think we in Australia are 
at the very forefront of it. Yeah, uh, look, Marcello, it's fantastic talking to you about this, and we're, we're going to wrap this up because we're out of time, but I, I will say, like, the, the thing that, the, that amazes me here is, you know, I remember a decade or maybe a decade and a half ago, I said that the two areas of medicine that I thought were fascinating, exploding, were one were neuroscience, which I think we've seen bore out, and the other was the immune system, which, you know, and, and immunology, and I think we've seen that as well. The one that I didn't consider was the complexity and, and just the, the the glorious nature of our gut and our colon and all the things going on there and how, how complex and, and sophisticated it is relative to other parts of the body and i think um it's great to hear this work coming out it's great to hear that you've had this incredible you know sort of a collegiate relationship with the guinea pig for for so long thanks so much for talking to us today and einstein and gago and good luck with the ongoing work thank you very much shane thank you thank thank everybody else and i'm delighted that this attracts some interest and attention absolutely it's great stuff thank you very much folks that was professor marcello costa from the college of medicine and public health at flinders university over in adelaide now uh you're stuck with me for the next 10 minutes or so before our next guest comes on the line i thought it would be good to have a bit of a gap here because the guest we just spoke to from adelaide was talking about feces and the guest we're going to be talking to later in the show is talking about nutrition and food so i thought i might uh just throw some astronomy and astrophysics in the middle just to uh, as a palate cleanser as it were am I allowed to say that anyway um I wanted to talk a bit today about Jupiter's Trojans. Now, you may not have heard this term, and it's probably not surprising if you haven't, but everyone, I think, has heard of the idea of there being an asteroid belt somewhere located between Mars, the orbit of Mars, and the orbit of Jupiter. And we most of us learn this when we're in, we're in early school. Um, but what we don't learn about is the fact that there are asteroids in other parts of our solar system that are not as well known. And one of the very significant areas of asteroids is what we call the Jupiter Trojans. Now, this is a group of asteroids that sort of form two very significant clumps. Some, uh, and they're both in the same orbit pretty much as Jupiter. However, some of them are a little ahead of Jupiter and some of them are a little behind Jupiter. So you can imagine Jupiter's going around the sun in its orbit and there's this big group of asteroids that are a little bit ahead of it. Um, as it goes around the, uh, the sun, and there are a group of asteroids that are a bit behind it. Now, this is kind of weird in a way. We think, why are they there? And they are in these locations for a very specific region. And you may have heard some years ago me talking about these things called Lagrange points out in space. Now, these are these weird locations where kind of the way in which gravity and various things pull on objects um, kind of equals out. So you might imagine that um, somewhere between the Earth and the Moon, there would be a point where the Earth and the Moon would be tugging at you from opposite directions with the same amount of force. And if you're in that particular location, you'd probably be quite happy to stay there for a very, very long time. And that would be because there's nothing to pull you anywhere else. Essentially, all the forces are kind of equal and you hang around in that location. That's called a Lagrange point. And essentially, there are a number of Lagrange points around every object in the solar system. And these tend to be locations where we find some interesting things. So two of the Lagrange points for Jupiter are located one in front of Jupiter in its orbit and one behind. And that's where we find these Trojan, these Trojan asteroids. Now, some of these are quite big, and the first one was actually discovered back in 1906, so over 100 years now, by a guy named Max Wolf. And since then, there have been quite a lot of these asteroids near Jupiter discovered. So, in fact, I think the current count is just under 10,000 of them. So we're not talking about just a few here. We're talking about a very large number. 
So I think the number's currently sitting about 9,800. And this has been uh, one of those scenarios where in just recent decades, we've seen a huge increase in the number that, that have been observed. So if we, if we go back to about the 1960s, there are about 14 of them known. In 2000, there are about 257 that had been spotted. By 2003, we went from 257 to over 1,600 being known. Just uh, four years ago, 2018, there were basically, if we think there are two of these Lagrange points, so one in front and one behind Jupiter, there was over 4,600 in one of those and 2,000, just under 2,500 in the other. So we were up way up around the 7,000 mark by that stage. And now in 2100, 20, we're up around you know, just under 10,000. So these are hard to spot, of course, because they're not objects that emit light. They're objects that reflect light. They're just big you know, bits of rock. And um, But some of them are very, very significant and very large. So, for example, the largest one, which is called Hector, um, is or 624 Hector, if you want the, the specific details, it's over 203 kilometres wide. So this isn't a small rock. This is a damn big bit of, bit of junk and is sitting there in one of these Lagrange points. Now, why are these interesting? Well, part of it is because these things came along when the solar system was being formed. So they're over 4 billion years old and they've just been sitting out there essentially untouched in space. So the idea is if we could have a look at these or you know, maybe even one day get a sample of these, we'd be able to learn a bit about what the solar system was like when it was first forming. And there's a few different theories actually as to how they got there and where they came from. And not all of these theories um, match up with what we see at the moment. So for example, we do see these Trojan asteroids not just around Jupiter, but around some of the other planets as well. So um, Mars, for example, has some, Neptune has some, and believe it or not, Earth has them as well. Um, in fact, just this last February, uh, there was a second detection of a Trojan asteroid um, following along Earth in its orbit. So, you know, to be fair, Jupiter, very large planet, has over 9,800 of them. Earth, at current count, has two. Um, now, the fact that they're near Earth doesn't make them that much easier to see because often these are very small objects and we're sort of almost looking into the sunlight to, to see them in that part of the sky. So they can be very tricky to, to, to find. But interestingly enough, Saturn doesn't have any. So there's some really interesting sort of history here that we need to learn about where they come from, uh, why they're around some of the planets and not others. And these are things that we still, we still don't really know. So what do you do when you need to find out more about uh, the planet, planets in the solar system? Well, of course, we send up uh, all sorts of you know, probes and so forth um, to start you know, looking at what's going on. We did that, remember, we did the New Horizons probe to, um, to, to Pluto, and we found out it was this incredibly dynamic, interesting world, whereas before it was seen as potentially something very boring. So on the 16th of October, that's Saturday week, if I'm doing my numbers correctly, there is a 13-metre-long craft named Lucy that is being launched by NASA to go and study these um, some of these asteroids that are in Jupiter's orbit. Now, you may wonder why on Earth is this called Lucy? Well, it's actually named after the, the skeleton that was found in Ethiopia back in 1974, which gave us an incredible window into the past of human evolution. And given we're looking at the evolution of the solar system, the team obviously felt that it was a appropriate to name this craft after that particular skeleton that was found back in in the 70s. Now, Lucy's an interesting craft, you know, it's 13 meters long, it will have uh, you know some propulsion 
in it, which is a combination of fuels of things called hydrazine and liquid oxygen. It's got about 725 kilograms of that fuel, which makes up about 40% of the craft's total mass, actually. So it's a a lot of what we're we're sending up in this case is fuel so that it can do the maneuvers and things needed to to study some of the asteroids. And it's going on a 12-year journey. So essentially, it will, during that 12 years, it will head out to Jupiter, it will look at some of the asteroids in one of those two um, locations. So I think it's starting off with the ones in, in front and it will examine some of those. Then it will head back to Earth. It will get a bit of a slingshot and then it will head back out to Jupiter again to look at some of the other ones in the other Lagrange point. And in total, it's going to look at uh, essentially seven asteroids in these Lagrange points. And it's also going to take a, take a bit of a swipe at one of the main asteroid belt asteroids while it's on this journey. So it'll be looking at eight asteroids in total over a period of about 12 years. Now, the interesting thing is its mission won't really stop at the 12-year mark because it will end up staying in one of those two Lagrange points near Jupiter. So it can continue to you know, take images and do data analysis for a very, very long time beyond that 12 years. But the 12 years is the cycle that has been put forward to look at eight of these asteroids. We don't know what they're going to be like. We don't have a lot of data on them. Um, some may be icy, some may be rocky, some may be in between, some may have organics on them, as is often the case with um, these sorts of locations in space. But what we don't know is, are they more like the normal asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, or are they more like the Kuiper belt out beyond Pluto, where most of our comets and so forth come from? These are very different objects, and it'd be good to know where these particular ones come from, because that will help us understand how these things were created, and we'll learn a lot more about how Jupiter and Saturn and all of our planets ended up in the locations that they are stably, thankfully, uh, in now um, that we all enjoy. So anyway, uh, keep an eye on that. The Lucy Craft will be uh, launching in uh, on the 16th, Saturday, or in the US, Saturday the 16th of October, and it will take uh, several years to get to its location. But once it does, it will be sending back, no doubt, some amazing data on what is going on out there, a little bit in front and a little bit behind of Jupiter. We're zipping around the country a bit today. We just spoke to our guest from Adelaide a few minutes ago, and now we are heading up to the University of Newcastle where we have Dr. Tamara Butcher on the line. She's a senior lecturer and head of discipline food science and human nutrition in the School of Environmental and Life Sciences in the College of Engineering, Science and Environment. Tamara, good to have you on the show. Good morning, Shane. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Now, before we get into your work, let's just uh, touch base in terms of uh, what's happening up there in, in Newcastle. You, uh, you're still teaching remotely, I assume. How is that going? Um, yes. Well, I'm looking forward to going face-to-face, but at the moment we're still having everything online. My classes, we go back for some of the essential teaching, hopefully very soon. Yeah, and what, what's I mean in in terms of your sort of classes and the and the work that you teach? I mean, are there laboratories involved? Do you, I mean, it's it's a lot about nutrition. That can you just send people to their kitchens, or is it more? You know, what what talk us through what that looks like. Um, so actually, my classes or the two courses that I have at the moment are both online. So one is on consumer behavior. 
um, where they do an online project, basically. So that was an online course before. And then I'm also teaching essential nutrients. Mm -hmm. And that's also an online course. It would have had face-to-face -face tutorials, but we're not doing them. But in our discipline, we have lots of um, laboratories. So for, like, for example, product development, where, yep. where students are developing products. And that's actually happening um, in their own kitchens at the moment. So we're actually trying to find some creative solutions where people are able to do some of the practical things at home. And yeah, we're doing a lot of filming and um, we're filming the laboratories and people work with data that we have collected um, yeah, the previous years, we do hope that we are able to catch up on some of the labs, maybe um, in the semester breaks or early next year. Mm. Now, we'll see. Now, now you're, I mean, given your area of expertise, I mean, when you go into a supermarket, do you kind of, does it just freak you out when you look at what's on the shelves and what people are being pushed to buy? I mean, how does that, how does that feel? I missed a little bit of oh, the sorry. I was just saying, sorry, yes, we froze for a second. Um, so when, when you go into the supermarket, I mean, how do you feel about what people are seeing on the shelves and that? Does that anger you? Does it freak you out? Like, what is that like for someone with your area of expertise? <laughs> Yeah, I, I tend to spend a lot of time in a new supermarket. So whenever I go to a new place, for example, when I used to be able to travel, um, I spend lots of time there, like looking at what the products look like, where they are, how advertisement looks at the background sounds and noises and how things are oh. organized. Um, yes, our food and eating environment and especially supermarkets do influence what we choose, how we choose and how much we choose. And yeah, it's it's very interesting to to see how um, supermarkets are organized. And there's not much much is um, there's not much coincidence. So most of the things are in the places they are for a particular reason. Um, you all know that there's sweets at the checkout and yep. at the entrance there's the fresh fruits and vegetables. Yeah. And, so and yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, there's there's an order. You know, and, and I think it's fair to say, like, if you're – I remember years ago at the supermarket I used to go to, for some reason, I used to go in the reverse order to everyone else. And I'm sure it pissed a lot of people off. You know, it was just going the wrong way. Um, but for me, it seemed to work better. But with most supermarkets, there is a direction you are supposed to start at and end at. Is this all constructed in a certain way? Yes, it's all constructed. We like to go in, like we like to go counterclockwise. And most of the larger supermarkets – they are organized in a way that you enter, you meet fresh fruits and vegetables, you have this impression of freshness, and then the bakery will be somewhere close as well. You will smell fresh bread and every, everything looks very natural, wholesome, healthy. And um, so you circle, uh, circle around. Mm. And then you end, uh, what well, you're describing exactly my supermarket, then I always end in the ice cream and the chocolate section. <laughs> yeah, exactly. D well, yeah, does this There's make also, me more susceptible to these items, this order? So we also know that after a while, after you have made a lot of choices and decisions, you tend to fatigue and you tend to buy, uh, do more impulse um, buying towards the end of your shopping. And these items, so that like the sweets and snacks and the sales, um, if they come towards the end, you might as well grab them, right? So. My God, I feel so used. <laughs> this is, uh, okay, I hadn't really thought of it that way. I mean, there's a lot of science behind this. Now, the other term that I saw in what you sent to me was this, this idea of digital nudging. What, what does this mean, digital nudging? I could take a guess, but I'm scared to. 
Yeah, well, in principle, it means that we are trying to restructure online shopping and online choice environments in a way to promote healthier choices. So notching refers to changing behavior in a predictable in a predictable way. And um, well, that's done in any case. So there's no coincidences. Somebody has to like set up designs, but um, we're interested in if we can um, structure online environments in a way so we can actually promote healthier behaviors. Mm. And um, there is a lot of data that you can promote sales and um, increase purchase behaviors, but there's very little known about how we can use these effects to promote um, the purchase of healthier products. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed over the years is there seems to be a greater sophistication of moving away from sort of guilt mechanisms to ones of sort of knowledge mechanisms. And I know there's a, a nutritionist friend of mine in, in San Francisco and she puts up great nutrition information and so forth. But every now and then she'll put a photo of herself eating a, a pizza, or, you know, like, and just, just sort of, um, you know, I think there's that element of bringing people into the tent without saying, look, you can't do any of this, and we, which is probably a step too far, yeah? Well, eating is a lot more than just um, than just nutrition. It's mm. also part of our culture, and um, yes, our, our spending time with people and enjoyment. Most of the time, it's not it's not about what you eat, but also about how much you eat. The he- healthiness is ultimately defined by the, Im- the amount of what you are eating. So, okay, any almost any food can be unhealthy or healthy depending on how much you eat and how often you consume it. So that's uh, that's a, a, a bit um, the difference. But in terms of of uh, nutrition, I'm uh, kind of an environmentalist when it comes to that. So it's important to know what is healthy, but it's it's by no means sufficient. So most of the people do actually know that fruits and vegetables are healthy and that we should eat more of them, but that by itself isn't sufficient. We need to make it easier and more appealing and more convenient, and we need to have these foods and products. We need them to be tasty as well. Mm. well and, yeah, the, the other thing before we go I wanted to quickly ask you is how are things going in schools and the way we educate our kids with regards to nutrition? Because the version I got, and granted it was, you know, 40-something years ago, um, was the food pyramid, you know, which I know is not something we use anymore. But how is that, how is that tracking at the moment? Because this is where we set people up for their lives. <laughs> Yeah, nutrition in education in schools is very important and we're trying to bring more evidence approaches in. And um, there is also attempt at um, integrating nutrition education into different topics. For example, there's a lot of nutrition in maths mm. and uh, there's a lot of maths in nutrition, not the other way around. So we need yep. to, like, for example, to follow a recipe, you need to be able to calculate a little bit, deal with proportions, understand um, volumes and measurement units. So you can use nutrition as example for that. And, um, yeah, it's also part of culture and you can bring it into languages and things like that. So we are trying to bring in more evidence-based nutrition and also um, provide more resources to teachers um, so that there's a, a big um, push for for that, and to uh, yeah look into how in- curriculums can be improved. But um, it's important also to look at what um, what foods kids have access to during the schools, not just yep. um, to tell them to eat health, but also to to look after canteens and make sure that um, the meals that are provided and the snacks that they're bringing are healthy, and to for teachers to role model and that they 
know about healthy nutrition as well. Yeah, look, it'd be very interesting uh, to talk to you again in six months about some of this and see how we <laughs> how we've looked back at the pandemic period with the lockdowns. Because I know you know some people have taken this as an advantage to really learn a lot about cooking and doing a lot of amazing things, whereas a lot of other people yeah. are just tired, you know. And then there are other people, you know, and I know I'm in this camp where I'm supporting local restaurants a lot more than I would normally do. So I'm eating more takeout just to keep some of those places alive. And I know that's not great for me, but I, I think it's important to do that as well. So look, Tamara, thanks so much for, for chatting to us. And, and, and thanks for sticking it out here in Australia. I know, you know, we mentioned um, before the show that you're from Switzerland, you're separated from your, your family. I hope you get back to see them real soon, um, maybe even before the end of the year. But um, we do appreciate you, you know, sticking it out here in Australia and, and doing good things for us with regards to nutrition. Great to talk to you. Good luck with the ongoing work and, and let's have another chat in you know six to 12 months and see see how everything looks once we've sort of worked out what everyone was eating for the last 18 months so thanks so much tomorrow thank you shane folks that was dr tamara butcher from the university of newcastle we're going to have to hand over in a moment to the team from eat it when well, i say have to i say i can't wait to because uh, cam's over there ready to go and uh, what better thing to follow on from a nutrition discussion than an entire hour on the amazingness of food that cam can deliver to you i'm dr shane uh, thanks so much for listening to another hour of science we have another big show for you coming up next week but until then if you have time subscribe to triple r we still would appreciate that and you're still in the running for the prizes if you do it before 5 p.m. this coming Wednesday. Otherwise, stay safe, uh, be kind to each other, and we will chat again in about seven days. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.